welcome. All right. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Um, just as by way of introduction, I'll say that Joy Castro and I have been colleagues in the creative writing program for several years now. And uh, coincidentally, we both have books out at the same time, which it, it, which could only ever be coincidental. I mean, you can't possibly plan those kinds of things in that way. Um, but also coincidentally, I think that there are thematic parallels and other parallels between the two books that, um, that maybe we'll get into as well. But um, ostensibly, this is a conversation about plot. And I think that's because that's one of the parallels that our books shares because of some level of, I think, perhaps extra consideration to plot in the way that we approached our books in this regard. Um, and it's also a topic that we've been discussing in my graduate class. And so um, I've been a little obsessed with it, but at the same time, um, a little ambivalent. I'm, I'm ambivalent about plot too. And so I think uh, maybe, maybe, I'll, uh, maybe you can psychoanalyze me, Joy, on these, these particularities, but, um, but welcome. And thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks to everyone. I'm so excited to see people here. I just see that Amelia joined us, uh, also a okay. colleague. So yeah, this is a fantastic crowd and it's delightful and I'm happy to be here with you. And of course, I'm a big fan uh, of all Timothy's work and this is very exciting. So I'm thrilled. So thank you. Well, and so one of the things that captivated me about your book was that each chapter seemed like it so um, so precisely and so efficiently just leaned forward <laughs> into the next um, into the next chapter, and so that I really I, I was somewhat conscious, I suppose, as a technician myself, that I was being carried along by the book, by the plot, by the story, the narrative voice, and and all the various particularities of craft, but at the same time not terribly cognizant of it, you know, just that, just like knowing that, you know, that kind of visceral thrill of, of just tapping into the story and just wanting to know more. And, um, and so that's, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about plot with you as well. And um, so, but I, I guess I want to ask you to start off in terms of talking about your own relationship to plot from three different point of views, from three different sides of yourself <laughs> that you have, namely uh, as a reader, as a writer, and as a teacher. And so as a reader, like what is your expectation of plot? What, what are your um, considerations when you're uh, approaching a book or when you're thinking about a book or whether or not you're moving um, painlessly <laughs> through the book? <laughs> This is a great question. Um, yeah, so as a reader, I don't care that much about plot. Um, I fell in love with modernist literature first um, with Catherine Mansfield and James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. And, and that's, you know, that's what I did my scholarly master's and my scholarly PhD in. Um, and like you can just really get lost in moment and mood and language and, you know, you can spend 24 hours reading about 24 hours. Um, 
you know, and uh, for me, that's very lush and rich. I think that my favorite um, genre is actually the short story, um, particularly those epiphanic short stories by by Catherine Mansfield that are just so perfect. They're gem like, and they're they're so rich um, uh, in poetry and in image, and they're carried forward by virtue of these odd associative links um, and repeated images. And, and that's kind of how I came to, to wanting to write was through reading that kind of literature. And then, you know, um, like when I learned that Latina literature existed, I was reading like um, Sandra Cisneros, and the house on mango street a series of linked vignettes that often work very much like poems so you know and then oh you get to the end and things have happened and the character has changed but i think i'm much more drawn uh, by character and voice and imagery and the lushness and rhythm of language so i actually have trouble imposing plot on on what happens um, um I want things to happen. I, I think what I'm obsessed with is really origins. Um, like, I'm obsessed with cruelty and because it's always so shocking and horrifying. Um, I'm sort of pledged to kindness and empathy as values. And in my experience, it's the moments of cruelty that have been so baffling and painful and you know it, more so than accidents or 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 tragedies that happen through no one's you know intention but but cruelty is the thing that has always just like deeply troubled me so much that I want to understand it I want to get to the roots of it and so um like in a lot of the short stories that I have written and published I'm trying to unpack uh, or unwind like from a moment of cruelty back to where it could possibly have started. Um, so I'm so I'm just super interested in origins and like that book of short stories, How Winter Began. It's all about how winter began, how the chill set in, you know, and it's like the Demeter and Persephone myth, what happened to make that rupture occur? um you know and and so like with flight risk i'm really interested in the story before the story um and, and with um like uh the the first new orleans novel hell or high water was really interested in how that protagonist became who she was like why did she have that hard-boiled voice you know she's she's basically a femme fatale if viewed from the outside but when you have access to her interiority and her backstory, you realize that there, there are reasons, there are reasons for everything. And so, so I think that's kind of how plot happens to what I write. And with Flight Risk, it really just began with um, those fragments of letters from the imprisoned mother to her adult daughter. So it's, it's the mother who's committed a, a very serious crime and has been convicted and gone to prison. I'm trying not to give any spoilers. Um, since S Timothy had told me uh, before everyone got on that um, many of y'all are currently in, in his class and that you haven't necessarily finished 
um, the book yet, so I don't want to to ruin any plot points. But um, yeah, the actual composition of the novel started with these fragments of letters from the mother to the daughter, and I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, Oh, the host has spotlighted my video for everyone. Thank you, host. Sorry. <laughs> I'm weaving the plot as you speak of our narrative. <laughs> I'm way bigger now to me. Um, uh, yeah, it, so it was very, it was voice driven, you know, those, those fragments, but it was epistolary. So it was the written voice captured on paper by the mother to the daughter. So it was very intimate, like this relation between two people who, who should have known each other very well, but didn't really, as, as can often be the case in families. Um, but after a crime, during the aftermath, um, reaching out. So it, it really started there. And I, I wrote like 50 pages of stuff. Uh, and then, and then look, I didn't want to plot it out in advance. I didn't have an outline. I didn't do anything like okay. that. I didn't yeah, I didn't know how it was going to end. So it was super different from the process of writing the two New Orleans novels, where I sat down and was like, I am going to write a mystery novel, so I better know what the ending is so I can put the clues in, you know, like super deliberate and careful, um, like learning how to do it. They mm -hmm. were my learning novels. And then this one, I just, I wanted it to happen. I wanted it to emerge uh, and and then figure out what it might be. I wanted it to surprise me and grab me. So, so it started with the letters and then I thought, who is writing these letters and who is she writing them to? Like, who are those people and what's their story and, and what could have possibly happened between them? And then, you know, all of the kinds of political issues that matter to me started, I wouldn't say working themselves into the story. I don't know. It just, it felt really much more organic than that. Like they were emerging. The more I wrote, the more I knew what I wanted to write. Um, so. And then, okay, so you asked as a writer, so I've sort of shifted into writing and, and plot. Like, plot has meant really different things to me with all the different projects in the different genres that I've worked in. So, um, as I said, for um, the two New Orleans novels, Hell or High Water and Nearer Home, I really wanted to write like a detective novel, a classic you know, sort of literary thriller uh, with, you know, a dead body in the first chapter. And then by the end, we know who did it. Um, I appreciate the particular genre pleasures that those novels deliver. And I've always read them um, from from early childhood and, uh, and found them interesting and meaningful. I wanted to mess with the genre in all kinds of ways but I was using it as a kind of a frame. So I wanted to learn it. So I did work with an outline and, you know, the whole causal thing, the king dies and then the queen dies of grief. I was definitely thinking about that um, with the chapter outline that I worked through in those. But, but for this book, I wanted to be a little freer and let it happen and, and find out what it was and sort of let it tell me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then as a teacher, the plot, you know, what I, what I really want, what I really want is for the writer, the student writer, to be very satisfied with the closure of the piece, whether it's the chapter or the whole novel. I want them to be 
satisfied, whether it, the closure comes at an aesthetic level or at the level of questions, so answering all the questions that the novel has raised, or both. Um, you know, ideally both, readers like both, but that doesn't always have to happen. Um, but I, I want the writer to feel very satisfied um, that, that they've really fully interrogated everything that that the novel is pushing them to ask questions about that they've asked the questions that they've you know either answered the questions or shown why the questions are not answerable you know by them at this moment in this work you know so i think i think really that's what i think about in terms of plot i think causality as as matt salises has pointed out in um his recent book, Craft in the Real World. Causality, that element of craft is something that mm, people with more power in the world tend to buy into. Uh, a lot of people really do have things just happen to them and they have to roll with it and cope. So, you know, I, I don't I don't I don't know that agency and causality are as key for me um, as as they might be. Um, for some teachers of of writing, I do want to see what characters do when something happens, like how they respond. So I guess causality in that way. Um, but it might be the case that a character cannot make something happen, right? that a character simply has to cope with the fallout of what has occurred. So I'm very interested in in exploring characters who are disempowered in traditional social ways and and how they process how they emotionally process and how they aesthetically process um, what they have witnessed or endured i'm very interested in that so yeah i think i hit all three <laughs> well yeah and all of these things are um I mean, the, the things that draw us to, to fiction, as you said, like voice and all the aspects of the writing and the character itself and sensibility of the book. And uh, certainly that, for me, too, is what makes me care about a book. I can't imagine, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a situation where I picked up a book and read the jacket copy and thought, oh, what a great plot. This is exactly, I mean, like, I don't know, a great plot from a bad plot until I'm in the thick of it, you know, and, I, and I'm not even sure I would be capable of discerning what made a book successful in that way. And um, unless, unless I was really just looking for a hardcore plot that was stripped of voice and stripped of detail, but was just actually all about here's what happens and then here's what happens next and here's what happens next. So yeah, so yeah there's these kinds of, um, I, I don't think we're all, always talking about the same thing when we're talking about plot and what we want from it. You know, I think that there is, there is a kind of quotidian demand to a certain degree that, that those accountants of that sort of thing have in mind when they're promoting plots. But then for me, it's just really, um, a plot can't exist separate from those other things and still make for a well-plotted novel, even. Um, I do want to read you this quote from, so this was just from, I think just this last Sunday's New York Times book review. So this was a letter to the editor. Each Sunday, the first section I reach for is the book review. 
And on most Sundays, I squirm in frustration with more than half of the fiction reviews because they are littered with detailed plot descriptions. As this is a consistent practice, I must conclude that it is an editorial decision coupled with sheer laziness on the part of many reviewers. What happened to sticking with the book's theme, style, context, and quality in the reviewer's mind? A primary joy in reading fiction is to turn a page not knowing what's going to happen next. Why spoil that? And that's from Pete Warshaw in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. <laughs> um, Hi, Pete. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, you know, um, are, are you hoping that I'll respond to that? I am hoping um, you'll respond to that. Is there a particular way that you would like me to respond to it? Would you want to offer guidance or shall I just start? Just dive in. <laughs> um, uh, the point about not knowing what's going to happen on the next page, I mean, that could have to do with the action sequence and thus plot in the conventional sense of the term, but it could also have to do with, you know, what stunning uh, metaphor is going to happen on the next page or what extraordinary sonic effect or beautiful image or moment of incredible tenderness between characters that you could not have predicted right so i i, I feel pete's pain there um, and you know it comes to what you were saying about like, the jacket copy uh, it's weird to me how much um energy publishers uh and and you know the staff at publishing houses spend on writing dust jacket copy all about the plot to try to entice people, because for me, it's so often misleading. What I want to do is open the book and read the first two or three pages, sometimes even just the first paragraph, and I know I don't want to read it anymore. Right? So for me, it really is all about voice and language and the kind of surprise and intelligence that grabs me and makes me think, ah, okay, I, I want to stay with this intelligence longer to see what's what's going to happen and what might be revealed even on the on the micro level you know like uh what is it there's like 12 plots or something like that and they've all been done over and over so i i they should probably just tell tell the readers on the back cover like which of the 12 it is and then give a passage from the interior of the book so that you begin to engage the authorial voice and and have a sense of really what's going to happen happen in a much deeper and broader sense than just a led to b led to c and the queen died of grief done um you know i so so that's what i would say to pete i, I share his frustration and yet i also don't I don't know. I mean, I think book reviews are so helpful in some ways, and 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 they let me know if I want to check the book out at all, right? Like, is there enough there? I, I think the the parts of book reviews that are the most useful to me are actually the little clips of you know quoted material, and I go, oh, oh, this author's voice is really interesting. I do want to check this out, right? And it, I don't, I don't really care so much what they're writing about in terms of the plot. Um, I want to know: Do I want to spend time with this person and this person's vision? Do I want to dwell there, and do I want to explore um, what what they've built for me? Um, do I have the sense that that's going to be worth the investment? 
of my time when there are so many other competing things, of course, as we always say. Yeah. So I think we're looking for a shared sensibility to a certain degree, and we're not going to know that from the description of the book. Or a profoundly unshared sensibility, right? So someone whose sensibility really shocks me and that I don't share, but then fascinates me. And I want to go there and learn from them. Uh, yeah, so. Yes. Yeah, you want to be drawn in by something dynamic or something comforting or, you know, then, um, but you don't. But yeah, you can't possibly know that. I mean, I think that there is certainly, if I get a plot description, I can be enticed by the the, the the concept or something, or there's something suggested about the characters and the world being described that makes me think, oh yeah, that's that will speak to my imagination. But um, yeah. but yeah, it's it's a curious thing to think that even that you you could be yeah, that even a person that a reader might be served entirely by plot seems. Um, and I think I think uh, our our friend, what was his name again? Pete was it? Um, you know. He, He's, I, I think he seems to be somewhat of, I think he's taking two critiques here in his letter. On the one hand, he's criticizing the reviews for having too many plot descriptions, but then he's also, uh, because he, th he thinks there's more to it and that that's lazy, but at the same time, he's trying to keep, he's asking them to not spoil the plot for them, for him. Right, right. And, um, and so I want to, that brings us to the question that we conceived together before the talk started tonight in terms of like, can a plot be spoiled? I mean, is that such a thing? Is, do, are we so, um, are we so uh, discombobulated by the act of learning something too soon that, uh, that, that then, or is there something, um, we do it, I guess, do we strive to write an unspoilable book to a certain degree um, that, that because plots are, because there are plots that are familiar because your character, you know, some of your readers will figure out what's happening or get some inkling of where it's going. And, um, and that's natural. I mean, it's natural for the reader to think through what might be coming next. And so we certainly don't want them to be, um, we don't want to lose the magical spell that we're casting over them by nature of them simply having um, figured out a plot detail before it's time. Yes, I mean, one of the great pleasures in life is surprise, right? The, the experience of curiosity, right? Of caring enough about something to want to know uh, what happens next or what's behind it, what caused it in the first place, or just, you know, what's down that path. Um, like, that's a delicious pleasure in life, curiosity. So if a book can provoke curiosity by any means, and then um, neatly and surprisingly satisfy it at some point, um, then it's sort of best of both worlds, the, the invoking of curiosity and then the, the pleasure of surprise. Um, this is very nice. And of course, if the, if the plot is predictable, in some way, then you then you don't have the pleasure of surprise. You you might have the pleasure of smugly going, yeah, I knew that was going to happen back on page eighty six. You know, um, right. and people do like to say that, but um, you know, uh, I think that the the pleasures are many, and to write an unspoilable book, I I I don't even know like how one would begin if i if i tried to think about how to do that i would i would be so stifled and hung up that i probably wouldn't be able to write a word um 
but uh, I don't know. What about you? What do you think on that on that score? Well, I was going to also quote from uh, the fictional foreword in Lolita, you know, which is attributed to John Ray Jr., PhD, where um, he, he says, offensive is frequently but a synonym for unusual. And a great work of art is, of course, always original and thus by its very nature should come as a more or less shocking surprise, uh, which mm -hmm. is exactly what, you know, you're speaking to as well. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's something about the, I, I don't know, reader expectation where I'm trained to, to be somewhat disoriented if I, I mean, like I don't, I don't want to hear. Well, I, I think sometimes coming attractions trailers for movies give too much away really. So like there is this kind of feeling like, no, stop, I want to, I, I get it. I'm going to come see your stupid movie. Just, you know, you don't have to play it all out for me. But, um, and, I, and I read somewhere that actually there's this sense in the industry that those coming attractions trailers that do tell the whole story in the trailer is are more effective and bring more people to the theaters than the ones that just do what we're asking for um, a book, which is to just communicate its, its sensibility. Um, but you know, that's interesting, Timothy, because when you were asking the previous question, I was thinking about the we there, like, who's the we? Because we read for really different things. Right. Like those, those, those viewers of the coming attractions, movie trailers, who want to know the whole basic story. They want to know that they're not going to be shocked or disturbed or offended or like you know really upset in some in some profound way morally or emotionally or whatever they want to have that kind of safety going into the experience um and and that's a different you know that's a, I, I think that's what people say a bit disdainfully about many many readers who like genre novels that that oh they they want to know what to expect and they want to get what they expect i, I think that um many keen aficionados of various genres are so familiar with the generic play that they want they want to be surprised within the parameters of that genre they don't want the same thing over and over that's a i think that's a, a misreading of um of genre lovers uh they're they're quite skilled at reading the conventions and then they want to read things that do new things with them uh, they want to read books that, that play with the conventions in smart ways um but but i mean they're like i'm thinking i'm thinking back to some of my earliest pleasures with mystery reading with with novels and stories um, so like i was a freak for the bobsy twins uh, series when I was a really little kid and of course you know I read a couple of them again when my son was young thinking oh I'll show this to my son no they're rife with all kinds of horrible sexist and racist stereotypes you know that was that was the day and uh but they provided a reliable mystery and there were these four kids two sets of twins who every book uh solved the mystery uh together um all in this one family and so it was sort of this, it was a, a sort of fantasy of um, peril, um, but then how, how familial bonds and uh, intellectual labor 
could save the day. So that was very appealing to me as a kid. And the, the pleasures were absolutely predictable. And it was just how they got there that was that was fun. And then the other the other um, stories like that that I used to like were the um, stories by Arthur Conan Doyle, all the Sherlock Holmes stories. I think I read the entire uh, set of uh, Sherlock Holmes mysteries, the short stories and the short novels uh, when I was in seventh grade. And I just loved them. There was something so tasty and satisfying uh, about every aspect of those stories. Um, they're so neat and tidy, like the closure. Um, and, and that's what I wanted as that reader, you know, that, that seventh grade reader. I wanted to feel mm, challenged and then uh, get to watch somebody much cleverer than I figure things out. And, um, you know, and, and uh, critics of crime fiction have pointed out that they're all tremendously conservative uh, in some ways, that uh, the, the notion of a lot of classic detective fiction is that uh, the justice system is indeed just and so on. And so, you know, after growing up a bit, I realized that I didn't want to write stories that reinforced that notion at all, but rather questioned and interrogated that notion and looked at the difference between um, law enforcement and justice. So, and, and uh, told new stories about what I think crimes are and uh, what I think justice should be. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting in terms of The Perfume Thief and in some of the stories that I've written um, about writing about people whose, whose very existence, whose very identities have been criminalized um, uh, you know, that, that there's no way for them to not feel like a criminal uh, if they're going to be alive. Um, and so that, that exploring that subject position, I think, um, can change everything for a, a, a writer of detective or mystery fiction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was certainly like, when I think about, um, like my childhood growing up as a queer kid on a farm in the 1970s and 1980s versus like my life now where I'm you know, legally married and you know I, I can teach and write uh, queer fiction. And, um, but yeah, the, the, the one thing that kind of remains in my sensibility from that childhood is this electric sizzle of, of um, was the word I'm looking for of, of kind of like uh, panic, <laughs> you know, that that this the sense that was like when you're a queer kid growing up in the 70s, you um, it's not so much that I mean, even if you could figure out a way to appease your bullies, even if you could uh, figure out, even if you did conform to the expectations of society, you did everything exactly what they wanted you to do, it still wasn't going to be enough. It's still because at the because the thing is, is they see something about that, that they think they see about you and it's something that's dangerous at your core. And so mm -hmm. it's, um, so I think that, yeah, that definitely has informed um, the characters that I, that I write about as I try to figure out, especially when I'm writing about queer characters in history, figuring out how they're gonna navigate all of those, all that secrecy and all of that danger and, and legality and, and, uh, yeah, and so and so yeah, characters who are 
living in the margins are going to, I mean, the very act of examining their own lives and the relationship to those around them is going to require a certain level of almost like um, some levels of deception, some levels of conspiracy, some levels of um, of anxiety and, and all of that, yeah, it does just make for rich, uh, um, rich plots, rich criminal tales. Yes, yes. And the pleasures, when they happen, of outwitting the bad guys, right? right. And that's yes. what's so great about Isabel and Flight Risk is that it's she is set up in the beginning, like she's on the edge, right? I mean, we're, we know right from her voice early on that this is, that not only um, is she living in New York, and not only is she lived from poverty and living among the wealthy, um, but she's an artist and, and she's trying to make her way um, within that community and within that business. And, and she's also um, kind of a straight shooter, you know, like she sees, she tells it like it is. She, she's identifying certain injustices, certain cruelties, certain, um, dis, uh, you know, uh, um, unfairness, and that this is all ultimately making her voice uh, crackle, you know, like, and so that, so part of the reason, like I mentioned, that we're leaning forward with each new chapter is because it also ends, I think each, each chapter ends on a note of Isabel's voice um, being somewhat contentious, you know, and, and so there's, so she ends up being this vital figure for conflict that, um, and so you get the sense that, that it's, it's going to, you know, that there's always going to be something twisting as she has to examine and re-examine um, the things that are coming at her and the things that she's having to uh, evaluate and analyze in terms of who her who she really is versus what she has in her past and versus what she has possibly in her future. Ooh, that's so cool, Timothy. One of the best pleasures of writing is being really well read. So thank you. I appreciate that attentiveness to the ends of the chapters. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's and that's also the fun part of reading as a writer too. You know, like you read as a reader certainly, but you're also of the other mind of of really when those when those technical craft elements really just seem sharply um, defined. Um, it's exciting as as a reader slash writer to um, to recognize that as well and to think about that all of everything that's playing into um, the complexities and the fabric of, of this book. So, uh, so, Casey, so uh, Casey Peters has a question. Um, and, so, and also, if you have any questions, please do just post them in the ch chat box and I'll deliver those. But um, the two social realms of the novel are so rich with characters and potential webs of side plot. And you did introduce and follow quite a few strands as the plot of the book expands in scope pretty significantly in the final third or fourth of the book. Did you ever struggle to find the limits of your pursuit in this novel? No, <laughs> that's, that's a really great question. And I would say, so, so this is what has helped me um, to, to write every book from my first book, which was a memoir, um, to, to this book, to the one that I just finished up and, and it's got edits back on today. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm always driven by a question or a, a set of linked questions, Casey. Um, and everything that 
needs to be there to answer those questions goes in and things that go off and don't answer those questions they stay out so uh, often i don't even imagine or envision them i'm just like a, a hunting dog right like sniffing out like what's gonna take me to the answer to the question uh, or the series of linked questions um you know so in this case uh it, you know it had to do with well really this book has to do with making fertility choices uh, in an era of, of climate catastrophe and when one has inherited a legacy of not so great parenting right and is having a trouble having difficulty knowing whether uh, one can trust oneself or not to be a good parent uh, so it's it's sort of that question of legacy and and trust and self-trust trust of others trust of self um, how to be in relation um, to other people, how to be in relationship to the natural world. So, uh, you know, how to protest things that you find wrong. Um, how, yeah, how to live. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, you know, all, all of those connected things for Isabel, uh, her relationship to the environment, her relationship to the people she grew up among, her relationship to the people she lives among, in her present day life in Chicago. And so like everything that would help a person, help a reader understand why Isabel is making the choices that she makes. So, so the middle of the book, I think it's called Lines of Flight. Um, uh, for all you theory junkies, um, uh, that is really backstory, right? Like she's flying home in, in these legs of the, journey she's flying back home to west virginia but she's thinking about all the things that have have made her the person she is in the now of the narration um so she's she's trying to contend with uh, all the memories from her past that she's perhaps able to process differently um you know from a from the vantage point of having some distance of having some financial stability um social stability um artistic fulfillment uh, as you were noting earlier timothy and so on so now she can look back and and think her way through all these things but the 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 backstory or these long flashbacks also help readers know then who she is so by the time she lands in west virginia and gets in her little red rental car i hope that readers have a much richer sense of of who she is and why she acts as she does um and so so things that uh then continue to answer the question of how should she now that we know who she is how should she live how, what choices should she make how can she navigate uh the the landscapes of her life um those are the questions that the final part of the book asks and i i hope for the most part answers um yeah good question well, uh, is that good do you think timothy and casey you can put it in the chat if you don't think that really got to some <laughs> aspect of the question well rosemary says that the shared questions might be related um but she's also trying to not give anything away but um but i'm also interested in what rosemary's saying here in terms of backstory so could you talk about how you layered the discovery of isabel's backstory with charlie could could Rosemary please say more about that? 
question, like talk about how I layered the, say, just, just could, Rosemary, yeah. could you just type a little more? Maybe I can even see if maybe she'll, maybe yes, I can give unmute her, her. <laughs> give her the power to speak. That would be totally fine. Oh, wow. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, just how you, uh, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't like to use the term breadcrumbs, but you kind of, you know, you're alluding to something that's happened and, you know, how it would, it seemed like it was, it plotted out so well and you wanted, the reader wanted to know, you know, what that, what happened, what that relationship was. And it felt like you, you execute it really well. So just if you could talk about kind of your, your thought process behind that. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a very good question. Um, and, you know, I'm not opposed to breadcrumbs. I'm a great fan of um, fairy tales, as you know from the book. Um, so uh, I tried to think about how, like, I, I tried to think about what would be the most pleasurable for me if I were a reader encountering Isabel's story. Um, and like, I wouldn't want to just know all upfront everything that happened. Like, I wouldn't want to find everything about Charlie out in the first chapter or even the first third of the book. Uh, I would like to be on the track. I, you know, like as the reader, I would want to be like that sniffing bloodhound uh, trying to figure things out. And so, um, you know, I wanted to layer things in about Charlie, that there's someone she misses that there's someone she was close to, that there's someone who's probably not alive anymore, right? And we just keep finding out more and more, but it's not entirely clear um, what the relationship was or, you know, uh, then the, the locket that shows up with the photograph and how she um, deals with that with uh, Helene, the mother-in-law, and then with her um, husband, how she lies to him. Um, uh, and then, you know, just, just everything is that as it sort of unpeels and gets closer and closer to the revelation. But I didn't want the reader to feel jerked around either. I really, I don't know, like I'm, I'm sensitive. I'm a big Patricia Highsmith fan and I'm a really big also Shirley Jackson fan. And I'm really enamored of how they, how they really get at something in in the psyche, right? That that just feeds you a little bit at a time enough to make you feel like maybe a sense of dread or a sense of evil or a sense of fear. Like it slowly insinuates. Uh, I don't know. Like mm, I I just like a little bit at a time um, until until the actual revelation, when it does come, feels inevitable, like, oh, yes, okay, now all the pieces fit together, it had to be this. Um, and now it all makes sense why the character was acting as they acted. Um, but um, there's something, I don't think that my work is nearly as sly or actually uh, effective as either um, Highsmith or Jackson by a long shot. I think they're both incredible um, geniuses at this, but they certainly appeal to me. They, they certainly, there's something, there's something sinister about how they get inside people's minds and how they get inside 
of my mind as a reader, right? And I'm like going along and all of a sudden, like I'm evil and twisted because Patricia Highsmith has carried me uh, with the thinking process uh, of the character so suavely and so artfully that I've just slipped right along, you know? And then I'm like, whoa, okay, well done. You know, hats off to you. Uh, and so I, 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 I don't think... I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm not so interested in writing from the point of view of someone who is a murderer or is like thoroughly uh, insane and cruel. Uh, and they can, they can do that, you know, and they did it well and in a way that's so profoundly disturbing. Um, I did think for a while about doing that with the, um, the mother character, but even so, I was going to try to um, explore the social factors that would have led to um, the particular crime and try to make her as sympathetic as possible and and to um, humanize her as much as possible. I think in the media, when there's a, a, a woman who commits maternal filicide, the crime in the novel, sorry, there's a spoiler, um, uh, you know, the thing that people say is, oh, it's unthinkable. It's an unthinkable crime. Or they just write write them off, like, oh, they're a monster, or, oh, they're psychotic, or whatever. And and I thought, well, I really want to think it. I want to think that crime. I want to understand it. I did a ton of research, um, psychological and sociological research, reading transcripts of interviews with women who had been convicted. Uh, for maternal filicide and we're doing time and talked about all the social factors in their lives and the sociologists talking about all the social factors in their lives and the ways that, you know, they were shaped just as so many of us were so shaped by our environments. Uh, you know, if we had been in different environments, uh, we could have also committed all kinds of crimes potentially, uh, you know, depending on what was available to us depending on the factors that sculpted us emotionally and socioeconomically and what our milieu was, you know, who was role modeling for us, um, what was presented to us as brave and heroic um, or ignoble, uh, you know. So I think we're all so very much products of our social environments. And then we also have, you know, the ability to make choices, but sometimes Sometimes not so much ability. Sometimes the choices are so limited by um, the circumstances in which we find ourselves that um, that that none of the options are really very good. But we still have to choose. Like we're still forced to act um, by circumstance. And I'm just so profoundly and deeply sympathetic um, to people who um, end up making destructive choices, um, hurtful choices. Uh, uh, at the same time that, of course, I condemn uh, the, the effects of those choices. Uh, I also just don't think it gets us very far or does very much to say um, they're monsters or that's unthinkable. I think we need to think into um, the most horrific crimes to understand them and then to find effective ways of preventing them, if possible. Yeah. Well, we have a question from Catherine, too, about how does your nonfiction work impact your ability to do fiction? Uh, she says, when I do fiction, suddenly I get ideas for my nonfiction. When I do nonfiction, I think of ideas for my fiction. And sometimes it drives me nuts. <laughs> Super cool. That's nice. Um, 
That's a good question, Catherine. Uh, I think they are always informing each other, um, nonfiction and fiction, and then also critical work um, that I that I like to do, whether it's writing about literature or writing about film. Um, you know, and then teaching the things that I have to keep learning in order to remain a, a viable teacher. Um, that also informs then what I think about in terms of writing fiction um, and nonfiction. I, I don't know that it necessarily drives me nuts. Um, uh, I think I feel nuts for all kinds of reasons, but uh, uh, I think that w what it does is it makes me feel like there's always this tremendous richness of options and that I can always keep learning and always keep creating and that there's always going to be something there as long as I, you know, like Julia Cameron urges us, as long as I replenish my well with enough rest and enough, um, you know, time doing things that nourish um, my, my spirit, um, then there are always going to be images there and ideas there and lines and characters and, you know, I think it's a it's a beautiful kind of richness. It's like knowing that the cornucopia is always there. So. What about you, Timothy? How would you answer that question? Well, I, I'm always feeling pulled by a variety of projects, you know, and so it's like, and sometimes I, I've, I'm of the mind to work on one thing and of the mind to work on another thing. And I think actually probably more competitive is reading, you know, because you sit down, you, when you do fall in love with a book and you do want to live within that's within the, within the world or when I'm doing research or something, you know, that's when I want to, be with the book and at the same time be in my own imaginative space and creating and you know, to be inspired right i mean uh or, or even a musical performance or, or, or whatever any moment that you're actually expected to be engaging with something else but then you know, you're you're drawn into um that imaginative space that that can be uh, uh yeah conflicting yeah, I think that you just have to learn to feel really good about the conflict, you know, yes. <laughs> just be like, okay, you know, now I'll just jot that down. And I know that when I get done with this, I can turn to that. Yeah. So, so Jason has a question. Can I ask about lines of flight and your relationship with the Luz Guattari? Yes, sure. So I don't have a very deep relationship with Deleuze and Watari, um, but I'm pretty enchanted by everything that I have read and I uh, really love the concept of Lines of Flight and I'm not gonna lecture about that uh, right now. I think that it would be much better for you to read about that on your own or take a theory class about that. One of those things that you know I got enchanted by and just know enough about to be a little bit dangerous um, I was just interested in thinking about characters who who wanted who wanted to to well this character in particular Isabel um, who who was urgently seeking another way of being in the world and was always looking for an escape hatch of one kind or another. Yeah, something like that, I would say. Just very loose. I'd leave that to a critic. Yeah. All right. Um, and then Will asks, uh, 
Is there balance between answering certain questions for the readers and letting them fill in the blanks for themselves? Is that a little risky to let the reader um, up to their own conclusion if it may be different than the intended ending that the writer has in their head or if they leave a bit of ambiguity? Oh, it's super risky. Yes, it's super risky. Good question. And I embrace the risk. Um, I really trust the intelligence of readers uh, very, very much. And if they come to a conclusion that I didn't intend, that's entirely okay. They might be right. Um, and I'm putting all the concrete details there and the story and the characters and they could come to a very different judgment a very different conclusion um i think sometimes um and this is interesting because this is one of the comments that i got back today uh from my editor on my next um book project uh she's like you know i think you could stand to offer a little bit more judgment here like it's super cool that you're if like the I have six narrators in this next project, six first person narrators, and um, I have this one narrator who just observes, right, and and relates what's happening and doesn't comment. Uh, but the things that she's relating, I have strong opinions about, um, but I want to juxtapose them in such a way that suggests to the reader um, what they could possibly take away from those observations, but not mandate it, not get didactic, not even necessarily clarify it, but just be like, oh, here are some, here's a rich collage. What do you think? What do you think? Um, and so I, I know that Flight Risk does that a few times. Um, and I don't even want to tell you the times that I think it does. Um, but certainly, you know, I don't, um, I don't anticipate that people will ever walk away from something I've written having gotten the moral of the story that I thought should be there. I, of course, I feel morally passionate about my own views, um, and I think they're there, but um, I, I, I never I never want to preach to the reader. Um, not everybody in this um, Zoom chat might know that I was raised as an evangelical Christian who went door to door. I, I didn't really enjoy this. Um, and I was born or adopted into a family that did that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, you may have had them knock at your door. And so until I was 14, I had to do that pretty much like all the time. And I hated it. And then when I ran away from home, uh, I just felt like this revulsion towards, towards preaching and towards didacticism. At the same time, there are things that I believe are better than other things. And I think, oh, well, if I just offer, you know, this set of things, like when you come up with an amazing syllabus and you think, oh, these texts are so phenomenal, but I'm not going to tell students what to think about them or how to think about them or what to do with them or what to write their argument papers about. I'm just going to say, look at this fantastic stuff. Let's read it together as, as richly and smartly as we can and talk about it and let's hear what everybody says. And I, and I, I kind of think of um, making art in the same way, just like, just like um, Isabel, she's, she's picking up objects, right? She's picking up uh, refuse. And, and putting them together in a way that she thinks is beautiful and meaningful. And then, okay, this is the piece of art. Um, but she doesn't say, oh, here's what it means. 
you know, or here's what it signifies. I and mean, if you go back to the beginning of the book and you read about the mound of dirt in the cloth of the bathtub, you're like, oh, well, you know, crap. But like, you know, she's she's not spelling it out. And, and I, I try to be that kind of writer too. I don't want to spell things out. I want to offer some things and I want the ways that they talk to each other to make some kind of meaning, but I, I, I can't do it with the preaching, you know? So I really, I probably err on the opposite side. Mm. I'm not sure about that though. So you might find my work really didactic. I don't know. So I try to hold back. Well, thanks so much, Joy, for, um, for uh, lifting the veil on the, <laughs> lifting the curtain on your, magic and uh, um, uh, walking us through these various dynamics of your writing and your imagination and um, Flight Risk, as you know, as I've told you, is, you know, just a really terrific book. And I think our students, my, you know, my students in my class are really responding to it. And so, um, and uh, so could you, do you, do, you, do you know yet when your next book is coming out then? January 2023. Oh wow! So that's that's soon. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, and it's it's also um, it's a novel of intrigue. It's um, a story about espionage and betrayal and romance, and it's my first historical novel. And it's set in 1886 in the Cuban insurgent community in Key West, Florida, uh, which almost nobody knows anything about. And I did all kinds of scholarly research, um, like totally nerded out since 2019 uh, on this topic, which has been important to my family for a long time, but I never knew anything about it. Um, it was like an effaced, it's an effaced part of US history and um, Caribbean history and Latinx history. And, and so I'm like recovering that period and I'm trying to make it interesting to strangers by making a cracking good story uh you know with, with you know betrayals and arson and murder and blah 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 so, yeah i can't wait and um and we'll we'll talk again when that comes out so well, thank you for forcing your students to read my book and thank you very much all you students for reading it i hope you have a really good time and if you have any questions later you know totally feel free to just email me or find me in the hall you know and i'd be happy to talk to you more about that or about your work as well so i appreciate it it's an honor and it's a grace thank you thank you joy and thanks everybody for joining us okay <laughs> good night good night